Well, if you've been with us at all through the last several weeks, you know that this time of year, um, we take some time to talk about some of the projects and various things that we do locally and globally. And uh, it's just been an amazing time. In fact, I'm going to invite Mark Nicholas up with me right now to join me. Mark's our director of missions and outreach. And as he's coming, I just want to say, like, this is a time of year when every year we take a special offering this time of year, and all the funds from that go to support these projects that we've been talking about the last several weeks. But one of the things that for me I've always desired for whatever church I'm a part of, my desire has always been that the church be so dynamic in the local community that if we were ever gone, if we were ever not here, the community would feel it. They would ache because we were gone. Because if we evaporated tomorrow, would people know that we disappeared? And, uh, and so I just, I love the fact that we have such a beautiful local focus that not only do we do great projects overseas, but locally we have some amazing things that go on. And I want Mark to talk a little bit about what's happened in the last 12 months uh, just since last year. Um, so Mark, tell us a little bit about some of the things, maybe some of the exciting things that have been going on locally that we've been engaged with. Yeah, I think we were, we were having fun talking about this the other day that we, we gave out um, 25,300 food boxes over the course of this year. Yeah, 25,000. <laughs> pretty amazing. Yeah. You know, I got that number, I got that number this week. Uh, I saw that number for the first time. And, and uh, I was thinking about how uh, you know, you see like on, during the NFL broadcasts on Sunday afternoons, you know, they'll highlight some organization, like they gave out a thousand. And I was like, man, that's pretty cool. People giving out a thousand food boxes. And I find out we did 25,000. Uh, that's amazing to think about yeah. what we've done. Yeah. What, what else has gone on this last there, year? There's some other things going on. Every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday in the morning here, we have ESL classes. Uh, we work with Friends of Refugees. We've got about 60 or so um, adults. Um, mostly women from countries that have, uh, like Arabic countries and also Afghanistan that are learning English and getting ready to, to be able to engage more completely with our, yeah. with our culture. I think it's really amazing. You know, every, every week when I come, like on a Monday or a Tuesday or a Wednesday when I pull in here, uh, I'm always, I mean, somehow you've arranged some sort of partnership, Mark, <laughs> where, I mean, it's like there's a Red Cross truck in our parking lot. There's, uh, there's something for police officers that's going on here. There's first responder things that happen in our building. There's, I mean, there's just something happening here all the time. But give us an idea. How many organizations are we partnering with these days? We, we partner with um, 40 organizations. This year, we actually added another five that we're working with. Amazing. Again, one is the Friends of Refugees ESL classes. The other one is Solve and some of the stuff we've been doing in the city. We've been doing yeah. cleanup. We roll up our sleeves, get dirty, and spend about two or three hours at a time working on homes around the city that are the police call us. And they say, we don't want to issue a citation because this is an elderly person or this is a disabled person. But the neighbors are complaining and their property has to yeah. be cleaned up. So would you come and help us out? So we bring a team out there and we clean it up it's and amazing. neighbors are happy and people are happy and the city is happy. Jesus gets yeah. all the credibility in the all world the credit, when we yeah, show up yeah, to do that kind of thing. Yeah, it's really yeah, amazing. The right? gospel is proclaimed every time. Yeah. yeah and that's kind of an expanding yeah. thing. That seems to be growing for the, the, the next year. The next year, yeah. Yeah, because Meals yeah. on Wheels, they heard about us. Meals on Wheels heard about us and said, <laughs> what are you doing? You know, we have a lot of homes like that. Would you be willing to help us this next year? So there'll be a lot of opportunity to get to get involved in yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. As you think about the year to come, I mean, obviously a lot happened, a lot's happened the last two years. Yeah. We've done a lot. As you look at the year to come, if you were to say there's a dream that you have for what we as a church are doing in terms of local outreach, what would you see happening? Yeah, there's, a, there's one thing that I really love is how much the community wants to come and participate here, but I'd love to see us just engage out yeah. there. So we're looking for opportunities for people to serve in numerous ways. So whether you want to get your hands dirty on a weekend and help out on one of these projects or whether you want to be involved in some of the other, we need drivers. If anybody wants to just drive vans for us, we always have a need for that. But we're just looking 
looking for that much more engagement to get out there and be in the community. We have one that we're going to be doing. It'll be on the, on the website pretty soon where we're going to give at-home opportunities. You can just be at home and as a family put together a refugee kit that will support yeah. some of the Afghan refugees who are coming. Love and we've just got so much. And if you want to be involved with the refugees, let us know because we've been receiving families and helping them out. A number of our people have become official cultural navigators and they're welcoming families when they arrive at the airport and helping them get settled in. Yeah. Mark, thank yeah. you. Yeah. You bet. Thank you, you so much. Okay. Mark you. is like the energizer bunny around here. So thank you, Mark. Right. Yeah. God bless you. Take care. Uh, he has so much energy for so many things, and he and his team, and uh, it's, it's just amazing, like, all the stuff that happens that we get to be a part of. And I'm just going to, I want to second that. I mean, if there was one thing I could dream about, it would be that we would be known as people who, he said this, we, you know, roll up our sleeves and get our hands dirty. Uh, that's a great reputation to have as a church, amen? That we're that kind of church that says, we're going to dive in and we're going to do stuff in our city. So right now, I'm going to invite the ushers to receive the offering. If you do want to give something above and beyond your normal giving to that, uh, to help fund those new projects and some of the things locally and globally that we've been talking about, you can just put um, B4 Advent on your giving, and, uh, or you can scan the QR code, and you can, um, you can also give online. You can do that. Take your phone out, and there's a QR code on a bunch of your pews and different things. So uh, as the ushers come to receive that, or do they already do this? Am I just like late to the game? I'm late to the game, aren't I? That's great. Hey, a couple of announcements also I want to mention is uh, that this week is, this is Christmas week. Yes, yes. Got some excited people. I love it. My high school crew over there, they're excited. Anyone got all their Christmas shopping done? You did it all? You're finished? All right. There are the overachievers among us. There you go. I actually asked that for them because they are coming to church thinking, I hope he asked who has it done. Because this is, I can get acknowledgement to get all my shopping done. But uh, this week is going to be really great. We've got four services. So we have two on Christmas Eve Eve, and we have two on Christmas Eve. Uh, I've already heard the best dad joke of the year, and that's, do you know what you call Christmas Eve Eve? Christmas Adam. Yep. Yep. I've heard it. It's a bad dad joke, but uh, we've got two Christmas Eve Eve services, two Christmas Eve services, and uh, it's going to be a great time together. Uh, I might actually just want to encourage you, if you've got friends that you want to invite, it's going to be a great candlelight service, and, uh, and we're going to have a new song that our B4 creative team has written that's going to be really beautiful and amazing, and so uh, it's going to be a phenomenal, a phenomenal Christmas Eve service. So I encourage you to, to bring somebody to that. It's going to be really good. Sound good? All right, so we are in a four-week series called Humankind, and we're learning about Jesus through his interactions with humanity. So conversations that Jesus was having with different people. When Jesus talks to somebody, we not only learn something about ourselves, but we also learn something about Jesus by the way that he talks, by the things that he says, all of those different things that are happening. We learn about who Jesus is. And uh, today's no exception. Today we're going to be looking at a really interesting conversation. In fact, when I think about all of the different interactions that Jesus has with different people, this one stands out as really, really unique. And I think you're going to see why. This is unlike most of the conversations that Jesus has, and it actually teaches us something really significant. So a little different this week. What I'm going to do is just read through the entire story, and then we're going to go back and talk about what's going on here. So if you have a Bible, I want you to open up to John chapter 3. We're going to start reading in verse 1. If you don't have a Bible, the words will be on the screen up here, and you can follow along there. But John chapter 3, beginning in verse 1, this is what it says. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. 
And Jesus answered him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born again when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? And Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be true? And Jesus answered him, are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we've seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I've told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the servant in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. So here we're introduced to two things. We're introduced to this very interesting man, and we're introduced to this very unusual and often in our culture misunderstood phrase or metaphor, born again. So before I talk about the metaphor, I want to talk about this man, Nicodemus. Uh, The text says that he was a Pharisee and a ruler of the Jews. What does this mean? We we want to get an idea of who this man is because it's going to inform us about what Jesus is actually saying to him. Um, Being a Pharisee, being a ruler of the Jews, means that this is an older man. This is a distinguished gentleman in society. He was rich. He was educated. He's a scholar. So he is among the cultural elite of his day. What else do we know? Well, we also know from the text that he was a part of a group of people. If you look at the text, it says that we know that you are from God. We know that you have God with you. So he's talking about we. Who is the we? He's a member of this group of Pharisees. And so these individuals are people who have been opposing Jesus. They've been questioning who he is. They've been wondering if he can be trusted or not. And so he's among this group. And we also know, and this is something I need to make clear, is that Nicodemus is not necessarily a spiritual seeker. Uh, Some people see this as Nicodemus coming under the cover of night because he has this secret interest in who Jesus is. Probably the more realistic answer for him coming in the middle of the night and doing what he's doing is that he's representing a group of people and that this is a a, a sort of backroom politicking that's going on. Um, Some of the establishment is against Jesus, but some of them see Jesus and they're going, hey, we we can't really question what's going on. This is really good that's happening. And so he's, he's basically coming to Jesus and he's saying, some of us, we think that you might actually be from God. We've watched your miracles and we've decided that we would rather work with you than without you. And so he's inviting Jesus to come join them. Is there this possibility that you could partner with us? Now, He says this, he presents this to Jesus, he starts his conversation, and immediately Jesus throws out this metaphor at him and seems to just make a hard right turn. He just looks at Nicodemus and he says, you need to be born again. You need to be born again. Now, this would have been shocking for this man. Obviously, he's surprised by what Jesus says. He's thinking, what are you even talking about here? But if you even think about this from our culture, this would be shocking. And I want you to think about this for a moment. More often than not, when our culture says that somebody, and our church culture in particular, when we say that somebody needs to be born again, 
it's usually connected to somebody's story of devastation. It's somebody who's hit rock bottom, right? It's somebody who, who's been addicted to something and they're being held captive. It's somebody who um, our society is rejecting. They're on the outskirts of, of acceptance. It's a person who's come to the end of their rope. And in their desperation, they reach for Jesus. Or, or, or maybe we see them and say, oh, that person just needs to be born again. Well, here, in fact, here's an interesting development about this. Statistics prove today, and the data proves this today, it's well documented, that faith-based ministries are the best way to rehabilitate communities and individuals. This is well documented in our culture today. In fact, there is in our, in our society, in American society right now, there is bipartisan support for faith-based groups working in tough inner cities, um, working in prisons, working with the down and out. Because the research has proven, for example, like drug and alcohol addiction programs, they work better when they're faith-based, right, Bill? They work better when there's a faith dynamic to those things. There's a dynamic. And so there are leaders in our culture that say, well, they need this. There are people that say that sort of the cultural elite will say, it appears that this born again thing works for those people. And so those people, the down and out, the addicted, they need this sort of thing. It's the panacea for their problems. That's what they say. The problem is that Nicodemus doesn't fit into this category, does he? Rich, educated, he's on top of the socioeconomic ladder. And Jesus says, Nicodemus, you need to be born again. Why would he tell Nicodemus this? He doesn't appear to fit the stereotype of what we would think or even what they would think of somebody that needs this life-transforming experience. Why would he say this? Well, let's think of the other end of the spectrum. The other reason you would tell somebody they need to be born again is that they need some sort of moral compass, that they need some sort of moral code to follow. Um, that would be something our culture would say, right? That you could have money, you could be high in status or power, but you could lack integrity or you could lack character. You could be an immoral person who's wreaking havoc in your life. And we would say, man, despite your money and your your influence and your power, you need Jesus, right? You need to be born again. But the problem with that is this. This is not a man who needs more moral structure in his life. He's a Pharisee. He's a Pharisee. So, so Pharisees, they had hundreds of rules that they tried to follow every single day. There was a right and wrong way to do everything. You couldn't eat corn on the cob without someone telling you that there was a right or wrong way to eat it. By the way, I know that's controversial in some homes, but there is a right way to butter, salt, and eat corn on the cob, and we all know that, right? But this man has all of the structure in this life that you could possibly imagine. He has a squeaky clean reputation. There are no skeletons in his closet as far as we know. There were no blemishes on his record. He's a man of high standing, and Jesus has the audacity to tell him that he must be born again. So he's not down and out, and he's not immoral, so why would Jesus say this to him? Well, do you realize what he's telling us? Jesus' call to be born again is not a call to moralism and religiosity. In fact, based on what we're seeing with Nicodemus, it's a challenge to moralism and religiosity. 
This is fascinating when you think about it. Um, I've overheard people over the years, you know, traveling or doing different things, sitting on a plane or sitting in an airport or being on a train somewhere, and I've heard people over the years talk about other people in a disparaging way. And maybe you've heard one of these conversations. I have numerous times where someone will, they'll be talking about a guy and they'll say, oh, he doesn't drink and he doesn't smoke and he doesn't sleep around. He's one of those born-again Christians, right? And you hear the other person, you can almost hear the eye roll, like, oh, one of those, Right? as if not drinking, not smoking, and not sleeping around is what it means to be born again. Can I just point out something? That's what our culture tends to think. But right here, Jesus chooses someone who doesn't smoke, doesn't drink, and doesn't sleep around. He chooses someone who has an impeccable record, and he says, you have to be born again. You, and all of your perfection, all of your goodness, you need to be born again. What's he saying? This message of the new birth It is not a call to morality and religion. It is a challenge to moralism and religiosity. He's coming to the most moral person. He's saying, you have to be born again. In other words, you need to start over. You need to start over. Everything that you have done, it doesn't matter. And there's nothing that confronts moralism and religiosity more than Jesus' invitation to be born again. So what does this mean? What is Jesus really saying when he says this to him? Well, when he says it to to Nicodemus, what he's really doing is he's saying this to everyone. If he can say it to him, he can say it to all of us, that your status doesn't matter, your education doesn't matter, your record doesn't matter, none of it matters, right? Everyone needs a new birth. That's what Jesus is saying. Irreligious people and religious people need a new birth. Immoral people and moral people need a new birth. Clear on this? So before I move on, I want to be clear about something else. I think one of the greatest dangers and one of the biggest reasons that people's individual faith grows stale or stagnant, and I think one of the reasons that the church begins to lose having impact on its community is that we mistake our morality and our religiosity for what Jesus calls being born again. And what Jesus is alluding to here is that the moment you begin looking at others and saying, oh, that person needs to be born again, you start forgetting that you do, and that's a really slippery slope. Everyone needs the new birth. Everyone needs it equally. Everyone needs it just as much. We don't ever get to say, oh, that person over there, like, they really need Jesus. You don't get to say that. It's not like, hey, I I need like 25% for Jesus to get me across the finish line, but that person needs 85%. No, we don't say that. We all need him equally. Are you with me so far? All right. So what is it? What is the new birth? What is Jesus really talking about? And I'm glad you asked that. Um, Jesus says a lot in this conversation about what it is or what it really means to be born again. In fact, once you get rid of the idea, these two ideas, that it's sort of moral, a call to moralism or, or religiosity or that it's only for the down and out and it's sort of like being pulled up out of the mire, um, once you get out of that thinking, you begin to really see what it is. Um, the metaphor, new birth, is not the only metaphor that Jesus uses to describe what he's describing Uh, With the Samaritan woman who he meets at the well, he talks about uh, living water and drinking living water to give the same sort of understanding of what he's bringing people into. He talks about light and walking in it as receiving what he's describing. He talks about um, building a life like a house on his words as receiving his life. He uses all of these metaphors, but here with Nicodemus, 
the way he offers this invitation to him, it's being born again. And it's a radical metaphor. It is a radical metaphor. And especially to this religious, moral person. It's not like Jesus looks at him and says, hey, you know what, Nicodemus? You've done a really good job up to now. Like, man, you are almost across the finish line. Now I'm going to take you the rest of the way. So grab my arm and I'm going to pull you the rest of the way. That is not what he does. In fact, he does the opposite of this. Nicodemus, if you want to enter into, if you want to experience in the here and now, the kingdom that I'm talking about, nothing that you have or haven't done up to this point matters. You have to go all the way back to the beginning. That's what he's talking about. This is not like Candyland. If you ever played Candyland with your kids and there's the molasses swamp right towards the very end, you get stuck in it and you got to play a certain card to get out of the molasses swamp. This isn't like that. This isn't like you play the Jesus card. You almost got there. This is more like shoots and ladders. You go all the way back to the beginning. Are you with me on this? That's what we're talking about. You start over. The new birth means you start over. You go back to the beginning. And there's no more radical statement on our religiosity than what Jesus says about the new birth. No matter what you've done, you have to start over. Christianity, being a Christian, being a follower of Jesus is not something that you add to what you are already doing or have already done in your life. It is an entirely new journey. That's what he's telling him. Which, by the way, to go back to the statistics I talked about earlier, this explains why so many folks who are down and out or whose lives are in turmoil or have made mistakes gravitate more quickly to the gospel because more often than not, they have little to lose. Someone says, you want to start over? And they go, yeah, if I could start over, I absolutely would, right? They've discovered this. They've discovered they don't just have the ability to be wrong. They actually are wrong. Right? That's, a, that's an important distinction. It's one thing for you and I to say, oh, I have the capacity for being wrong. Not sure I ever really am, but I have the ability to be wrong and actually saying, oh no, I'm wrong and I messed up. And that's what the new birth requires. If you have left to, less to lose, it's easier to start over, right? But if you consider yourself an accomplished person, if you consider yourself a moral person, if, if you feel like you, you do pretty good on your own and that Jesus can maybe help you with the rest, then you are further from the new birth than you ever imagined, if that's who you are. Because the new birth isn't built on what you have already done. It's starting over. And by the way, who's going to get that message and celebrate? Well, it's not going to be people with accolades and titles attached to their names. It's not going to be those in positions of power and influence. It's not going to be the homes that are filled with smells of rich mahogany and filled with you know, leather-bound books. Those aren't the people that typically say, I'm so excited about having to start over. And that's what Jesus is getting at. There's this quote. There's this one moment when Jesus is talking to a group of religious leaders, and he looks at them and he says, you realize that the pimps and the prostitutes get the kingdom before you do. It's kind of offensive thing that he says to him. And he's not saying that to them because they're somehow better people. He's saying it to them because they get the message of the new birth. They understand what the gospel is all about and they're willing to give it all up to start over. So I just want to pause here. If you're here and you have a hard time walking into rooms like this, like if, you, if you're the kind of person that when you walk into church, you, you start thinking to yourself, I hope that these people around me don't find out 
what I've done. Like if you ever sit here and you think to yourself, man, if people around me in this room, if they knew how broken I was or if they knew the mistakes I made, man, I don't even know if they'd let me. If, if, if you think those kinds of thoughts when you are in here, let me just tell you, you are way ahead of some of the most moral and accomplished people in the world as it relates to experiencing the kingdom of Jesus. You have a head start. In fact, if that's kind of your thinking, like, oh man, if people knew how broken I was, if, if that's your thinking, you might be the one who is really experiencing the kingdom right now. In fact, you're closer than most of the people who sit in churches week after week because you know what it means to need the gospel, to start over. So that's the first part of this metaphor. There's this reality that you go back to the beginning, but then it goes even further. And it's not just starting over. It's not just that none of that stuff matters and the, the, the slate gets wiped clean and you start over, but it's also that there's this new life. If there's a birth, there is new life. And there's a couple of aspects of this new life that he's talking about. Jesus says you must be born again, and it means that you get this, this new kind of existence implanted in you. There's actually a new consciousness that you begin to live with. When your eyes get opened, when you understand what Jesus is saying, now you begin to look at the world differently, and you begin to feel like you're living a different life. You begin to live like a different person. Your priorities change. You start seeing things around you differently as a result of this. And as a result of this, there's also a shift in identity. This is why the Apostle Paul later talks about individuals putting on the new self. Like, there, there's this sense of there's a new person I'm becoming, and I'm going to choose to put that person on. I'm going to lean into this new identity that's being birthed inside of me. It's a really strong term, but it's so accurate. We start to feel differently. There's things that happen that make us see things differently. We process things differently after we experience the new birth. Uh, 25 years ago, I got married. The moment that I married my wife, my relationship with every other woman in the world changed. Do you realize that? Now I walk into a room, and I, I'm not saying I don't recognize beauty, right? But when I walk into a room, now when I walk into a room, there are so many other things that go through my head, and my way of relating to every other woman in my life changes because of one decision, right? There's a complete paradigm shift. My thinking is different. My psychology shifts. The new birth means that psychologically now you look at the world differently. You look at your work differently. You look at your relationships differently. You look at your money differently. All of these things become different because there is this shift that's taken place inside of you. So there is a psychological dynamic, and then there's a spiritual dynamic to this new birth. There's a spiritual new life. When Jesus uses this term, born again, he's talking about a supernatural reality. And I just want to show you verses 5 and 7 again. They're going back and forth. They're interacting with each other. And then Jesus answers his second question and says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. Now, this sounds like a riddle, right? But what is Jesus talking about? Right here, Jesus is actually quoting and summarizing Ezekiel chapter 36 and Ezekiel chapter 37, something that Nicodemus would have been familiar with. In Ezekiel chapter 36, God says, I am going to give you a new heart, and because of that new heart, you are going to have new desires, and the way that new heart is going to happen in you is that I am going to wash you with water and the Spirit. 
So Ezekiel 36 says this. Ezekiel 37, this is the, the, the vision that Ezekiel has of a valley full of dry bones. We sang about it earlier. There's a valley of dry bones and he has this vision of the wind of God's spirit blowing through this valley and those bones being animated and brought to life by the spirit of God. And so he says, my spirit will give them life. So I'm gonna give you a new heart supernaturally and I'm gonna animate you with my spirit. So Jesus is quoting and summarizing this, and he's telling us that at a certain point, God puts his spirit in you, in your heart. He plants this thing like a seed inside of your soul. And so there is this organic change that begins to take place. And this change, this is not just simply a reformation. This is a transformation. Big difference between those two things, right? Reformation and transformation, uh, if, you're, if you're growing, if you have an apple orchard and you're growing apples and you get tired of apple juice one day and you say, you know what, I would sure like some wine next year. What do you do? Well, you get on your fertilizing schedule, right? And you fertilize the trees really well and you water a little better and you do some better pruning. And what are you going to get? More apples, right? You'll get bigger, better apples. The only way you're going to get grapes is if you tear out the trees and you plant vines. See, with Reformation, you just try harder. You change your bedtime. You make a commitment to be more disciplined, right? You stop doing all the things that your mom told you you shouldn't do, and it turns out she was right. You, you lean into those things, right? You decide to be the best version of yourself. I want to be the best version of myself, right? And you might get results, but it's Reformation, not transformation. It's pruning, it's fertilizing, it's watering, but it's not replanting. And what Jesus is describing is a replanting, that he places something in you and it transforms you. So how does that happen? I want to point out something really interesting about this particular conversation. I said it at the beginning because it's, it's really different than most of Jesus' other conversations. For example, the woman at the well, um, Jesus was playful and intriguing with the woman at the well, right? He's talking to her and he's sort of leading her into this conversation and it's sort of gentle and it's even at moments it's whimsical the way he talks to her. But with Nicodemus, did you pick up on this when I read it earlier? Jesus almost seems aloof and rude, right? This is really different. The guy asks a question and then Jesus just gets rolling with the guy, right? I mean, he asks one question and then he seems to change the subject. More on that in just a moment. But then he just lays into the guy. He just, Jesus interrupts him. Doesn't let him get a word in edgewise. In fact, Nicodemus, if you do a word count, his first statement's 30 words, second statement's 20 words, third statement, four words, and after that, he never speaks again. Jesus just like runs over him the whole way and you never hear from Nicodemus. He just starts listening. Why? Go back to the beginning and it'll make sense of this. Verse two, Nicodemus comes and he says, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God. For no one can do these signs unless God is with him. So listen to the two things that he says. He goes, we, we know you're a teacher. You're a teacher and we think God has maybe blessed your teaching and we've seen the miracles you do and no one could do that unless God was actually with them. So God seems to be with you. And it's that statement that seems to set Jesus off. And next thing you know, he seemingly turns the subject. We think, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. This is a confrontation. Why does Jesus do this? Why does he do this? 
See, Nicodemus, he says, we think you're a really good teacher, and we believe God is with you. But Jesus, when he hears this, says, no, you don't get it. You need to be born again. And when he asks this question, Jesus goes off. He reminds him of this obscure story. I don't know if you caught this. There was this story from Numbers where snakes had invaded the camp of Israel, and people were getting stung and poisoned and dying. And so God says, I want you to fashion a snake, and I want you to put it on a rod, and I want you to lift it up and put it in the center of camp. And if somebody gets bit, they look to the snake and they won't die. And Jesus says in the same way that crazy thing happened, the son of man needs to be lifted up in the same manner. He's alluding to the cross that awaits him in this moment. Jesus throws that out there and Jesus is essentially saying this. Nicodemus comes saying, we think you're a great teacher. But what Jesus is telling him is, I'm not your teacher. I'm your savior. I'm your savior. Nicodemus comes with a deal. Why don't you join us? You're a good teacher. God seems to be with you. And Jesus says, you don't get it. The reason Jesus makes such an abrupt change is that he's trying to get Nicodemus to see you need to be born again because you don't need a teacher. You need a savior. And until you understand that, until you, tr until you understand that I am a savior, and as long as you treat me like a good teacher with some good advice for your life, you are never going to experience the kingdom of God. You'll never get it. If it's about teaching, if it's about your effort, you're never going to receive what I have until you realize you need a savior, not a teacher. We need somebody to do for us what we can't do for ourselves. We need somebody to lift us and rescue us, not just give us more good information. You know what's interesting is that Nicodemus seems to have listened to Jesus he appears two more times in the book of John. John chapter 7, verse 51. You don't have to turn there, but there's this moment when Jesus, without him being in the room, Jesus ends up on trial. And, uh, and people are now criticizing. They're wondering what to do with him. And it's Nicodemus who stands up in the court of the Sanhedrin and he defends Jesus before all these men. The next time we see Nicodemus, it's after Jesus' body has been taken off the cross. And Nicodemus comes with spices and oil. The amount is incredibly valuable. He comes with spices and oil to embalm the body of Jesus after his crucifixion. Church history tells us that Nicodemus was one of the cornerstone pillar members of the first church in Jerusalem. Nicodemus, Nicodemus was born again. So, how do you experience the new birth? How do you experience this? You have to let him be your savior, not your teacher. You have to start over. This can never be about your accolades, about your effort. You can't start by saying, man, I'm a pretty good person, but I think Jesus makes me better. No, you have to recognize you need Jesus to lift you out of this place, to rescue you. You have to let him plant new life in you. You have to lean in and, and let this thing that he plants inside of you grow. You have to nurture this thing and experience this transformation. And you have to be born the way a child is born. I, I just think this is so beautiful that Jesus talks about this. He says being born again. I, I just want you to think about how a child comes into the world. They don't do anything, right? The mom does all the work, right? The mom is the one who suffers. The mom is the one who labors to give the child life. Isn't it beautiful that Jesus says the way you experience life in him is that somebody else will suffer, somebody else will labor, and that will give you life. So 
So Jesus invites Nicodemus the same way he invites us. He just simply says, will you see me as your savior and not your teacher? Will you let me rescue you? And that's all there is. Amen? Would you pray with me? As we pray, I just want to mention this, that every one of us in this room, if we stretched out a a line and we said where we were uh, religiously or irreligiously or morally or immorally, we would dot that line. We would all be in such different places. We would spread out. We could all say, well, I'm here and you're there. And, but the reality is that as it relates to Jesus, there's only two places we can be. We can either see him as teacher or we can see him as savior. And so regardless of where you were, maybe you've been a good moral Christian all your life, my, my feeling is that there's some really good moral, religious people who need a savior, not a teacher. And maybe for the first time today, you say yes to Jesus being your savior. And maybe some of you have been exploring your faith and you've been turned off by religiosity and maybe today's exactly what you wanted to hear, that Jesus offers a new birth, not a call to moralism and religiosity. And so maybe that's you. Maybe today you just say yes to Jesus. I want to give you space to do that. I want to give you space to respond wherever you are, to just simply respond to what Jesus is saying to you in this moment. Lord, thank you for that hard right turn with Nicodemus that shows us that we can't save ourselves. You rescue us. You lift us up. You plant new life in us for simply saying yes to you. So Lord, for all of us in the room that see you as Savior, on their behalf, I just simply say thank you for rescuing us. In your powerful name we pray. Amen. Amen. Would you stand with me? There's a handful of things going on this week. I don't know if you guys know that, but uh, obviously just a reminder of our services Thursday, Friday. Um, This morning as you leave, I think there's some more live music out in the commons. There's hot cocoa out there. Uh, I think one, a group of people on our team, they made Christmas ornaments. You can, like, homemade Christmas ornaments. You can pull off the trees, take them with you. Uh, so you can grab those today. Um, just so you also know, we have Christmas Eve, Eve, Christmas Eve, and then Christmas Day, and then Sunday the 26th, just so you know, there is no in-person service. Uh, it'll be an online service that'll land in your email inbox, or you can find it online. And then, uh, and then you can expect everything to get back to normal the following week. Thursday service kicks back in January 6th. So just just want to let you know about some of those details. Hopefully I remembered everything. But as you go today, um, let me offer this benediction to you. May you be men and women who drink living water, who walk in the light, who build on a firm foundation simply because you see Jesus as Savior and not teacher. May you be born again in his name.
Amen. Amen. We love you guys so much. Have an amazing, amazing week, and we'll see you guys later.